0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 51. You can find that on page 611 of the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. I'll be reading verses one through eight of chapter 51. Hear now the word of the Lord. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in it like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revelings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, do keep your Bibles open at this great passage of Scripture this morning. And let's pray together, shall we, as we begin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the Word of Christ might be our rule, that Your Holy Spirit might be our teacher, and that Your greater glory might be our supreme concern. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. This passage we have read today teaches us this principle, that to speak up, for God in the world, is to invite abuse. To speak up for God in the world is to invite abuse. Now, I understand, of course, that when we talk about speaking up for God, we, as the church of Jesus Christ on earth, are not always very good at that. We prefer to do things for the world. We, we prefer to, f- to serve the world, and there's a lot that we do to serve the world, things that, we, uh, that we've just been talking about in terms of feeding the hungry and, and serving the community. Those are things that are good because they're right. They're good to do because they're the right thing to do, and we don't dodge or avoid the responsibility to do those things. But those things will never ever those things will never, ever invite the abuse of the world. The world has never complained, really, about the church doing stuff for it. Just like when Jesus was here, no one started a campaign against Jesus healing people. There was no uproar because Jesus was going around all the towns and villages of Judea healing multitudes of people, thousands every day turning back the frontiers of illness and disease in in, uh, Judea for that period that he was on the march and on the move. No one ever complained that Jesus was healing them. And yet the reality is that when you speak up for the truth of God in the world, it invites the abuse of the world. So, for example, if you could imagine the perfect man. I know, ladies, you can't. Because, you know, you have husbands, you have fathers, you have sons, and they're not perfect, and therefore it's impossible for you to imagine the perfect man. But, of course, I'm not talking about any old man. I'm talking about the perfect man. And in the context of this chapter, that is precisely who we've been invited to consider in the chapters preceding this. In the previous chapter, for example, we were introduced to the perfect man. Servant who is the perfect man, and the characteristic of the perfect man in the Bible is that he is someone whose ear is attuned to the voice of God. Listen to what it says there in chapter 50 and verse 4 The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, morning by morning, he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Here we are listening to the self-testimony of Jesus the Messiah. Isaiah is given the words by the Holy Spirit of Jesus the Messiah, words that Jesus will speak way into the future from Isaiah's point of view. But Isaiah the prophet is given these words by the Holy Spirit. We are listening to the perfect man, the servant Messiah. And he says that God has given him an ear to hear what God the Lord would say to him. And what does he do with that word? Well, he speaks it. God has opened my ear, he says in verse 5, and he has given me a word, verse 4, that I may know how to sustain with a word him or her who is weary. Here is the Lord Jesus and he is speaking the Word of God. And yet no sooner are we told that Jesus, the perfect servant Messiah, hears the Word of God and then speaks the Word of God, than we look at verse 6. And we find him giving his back to those who strike, his cheeks to those who pull out the beard, and he does not hide his face from disgrace or spitting. I think once in your life, at least, you should watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Just to have it brought home to you, the sheer shock horror of the sufferings of Jesus on His way to the cross that are described here in verse 6. No sooner does Jesus speak than they want to kill him. That is the message of the Gospels. It isn't his miracles that invite criticism. It is the word that he speaks, and it leads invariably and inevitably. It is because Jesus spoke that Jesus died. And when we come to this passage in chapter 51, we find that Jesus is speaking to His people. And He is giving them this principle that to speak for God is to be abused by the world. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage. And we want to ask a couple of questions. We want to ask, first of all, who is speaking And if you want to know who is speaking, you can see exactly who is speaking if you just glance back. Remember, the chapter divisions are artificial, but if you glance back to the introduction beginning in verse 10, you can see very clearly who is talking here because uh, here we are told that it is the characteristic of those who fear the Lord that they obey the voice of His servant. And you will find that the servant and the Lord at the beginning of verse 10 are replicated in the poetic nature of the verse. At the end of verse 10, they are the Lord and they are our God. So, we are to listen to the voice of our Lord and our God. And the voice of the Lord and our God is heard where? It is heard through the voice of His servant. This figure, mysterious to the people of Isaiah's day, but clear to us. This figure who has divine honors, who is close to God, who has the Spirit of God in all of His fullness resting upon Him. This one who knows precisely what is in the mind of God and teaches us what is in the mind of God. This figure who is the servant Messiah. This figure is the one who is speaking. When you come to chapter 51, you are to understand that the voice you are hearing is the voice of the Lord God and His servant, the Messiah. That's who's speaking. And the voice of the Messiah immediately calls us, the voice of the Lord God and His Messiah immediately calls us, to listen. Look at this, verse 1, listen to me. Verse 4, give attention to me. Verse 7, listen to me. That divides up our passage, those three commands. He's talking to people, and he's saying, if you want to be, if you want to be hearing the word or the voice of the Lord God and His servant, you must listen up. You must listen up to what He's saying to you. And in many ways, on this Sunday that immediately follows yesterday, which usually does, it follows Saturday, but yesterday, of course, was Reformation Sunday, or Reformation Day rather. And on this Sunday following Reformation Day, we're reminded that one of the discoveries or rediscoveries of the Reformation was the fact that God is a speaking God. And in fact, what Martin Luther said on one occasion was this. He said… The ears alone, sole auras, are the organs. The ears alone are the organs of a Christian person. Now, Martin Luther wasn't one for, you know, uh, being polite about things. He just kind of said things as they were. And what he's saying is that if you are a Christian person, the only organs you need are ears. That's what he's saying. And the reason for that is because God is a speaking God. God communicates by words. When when He's creating the world, what do we read in Genesis chapter 1? When God is making things, what happens? Does He start to play with His Lego and put it all together? No. What does He do? In the beginning, what does God say? "Let Let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, things happen. And we get to John chapter 1, and what do we find? We find Jesus described there as the very Word of God. He is the the vehicle of the will of God. He does the will of God. The Word of God does the work. Out of nothing, God creates the heavens and the earth by His Word. In Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When God sends His church out into the world... He does not give the church something to perform. He gives it something to proclaim. This was the problem, of course, by the time of the Reformation, that the church had become so occupied with its dramatic approach to worship. People were observers, an audience of other people engaged in worship, and the worship the people were barred from where the worship was going on, and were observers of the worship. And the worship was not explained, there was nothing explained, there was nothing preached to the heart of people, there was ignorance abroad among people. And the rediscovery of the Reformation was simply this, God speaks to people and those people come alive. Ezekiel preaches to the valley of the dry bones, damn bones, damn bones, damn dry bones, Hear the word of the Lord. He said, hear the word of the Lord, and damn bones lived. And Ezekiel is saying that is precisely what happens when the word of God is proclaimed. Dead people come alive. People who are dead in their trespasses and sins come alive. The people of God who are struggling to believe find faith as the word of God is preached. And all you need to grow as a Christian, all you need to become a Christian are ears. That's all you need. Some of you need to clean your ears. Some of you need to wake up out of your comatose state. But the Word of God is the only thing. The hearing of the Word of God is what builds up the church and what brings life to the dead and will bring grace to your heart. So here we have the Lord God through His servant, and He's speaking. Well, who is He speaking to? Look down over this passage. He's speaking to people who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Uh, he's, people, he's speaking to those who, uh, if you look at verse 7, know righteousness and in whose heart is God's law. Now he's describing people. He's describing people who have a relationship with God. How did they find that relationship with God? Well, glance back again at the context. Look at verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? What do they do, these people? They trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon their God. What is the feature of those? people to whom He now speaking, it is this. You rely on God. You put all of your confidence in God. You lean on God. You rest on God. You throw your weight upon Him. You, you, you are completely surrendered to Him. Why? Because you fear the Lord, and you listen to the voice of His servant, Jesus. Well, as we listen to the voice of of God's servant, Jesus. We hear what He has to say to His people. Notice how they're described. They are those who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord. That's always been the way in which God has described His own people. When the Messiah servant came into the world and He began to gather His believing people around Him, what was one of the things He said to those believing people? He said, blessed are you who... Uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Reflecting the very description we find here, there are people who know God, and they're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They know it, and they want it. They want more of it. They want to be godly. They want to please God. They want to know God better. Well, he's talking to these people. These are the remnant One of the things we discovered, we've been discovering as we've gone through Isaiah, is that there is an ethnic Israel, and then within ethnic Israel, there is an evangelical Israel. That is, there is a group of people within ethnic Israel who actually believe the gospel. They believe the good news of the gospel God preached to Adam and Eve outside the garden when he said, the serpent crusher will come. They believe the gospel that God preached To Abraham when he said, from your offspring, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They believed the gospel that was preached through Jacob when he appointed Judah and said that through Judah, the reign, the rule of God would come to earth and the nations of the world would be drawn into the rule of God. He believed, these people believed the gospel as it was preached through David, that from David's own loins would come someone who would be the ruler of the world, who would be the world ruler, and who would bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth. And His kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. There is within ethnic Israel, and evangelical Israel, people who believe the gospel, the good news of the Messiah, And when the gospel comes in flesh in Christ, he calls out of ethnic Israel, his evangelical Israel, those who, like his mother Mary, his stepfather Joseph, Anna and Simeon and Zechariah and Elizabeth, are ready and waiting for the comfort of God to come, the very comfort that is mentioned here in verse 3. And as he gathers his little disciples around him, he speaks to them in the very language we find here as, uh, as God speaks to these believers in verse 2. Look at what he says here. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. Go back to your roots, your origins, your beginnings. Whether you think of ethnic Israel, that's where ethnic Israel began, it began from Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat and begat and begat twelve twelve sons, and from them all the twelve tribes of Israel came and became a great nation by the time of Moses. Little beginnings. God is speaking through His servant to a bunch of believing people who feel that their back is against the wall. I don't think that the primary audience here are actually the people who are going to find themselves in Babylon and thinking of going back. He's not thinking, I think, primarily about them, though I'm sure they gained comfort from reading this chapter. I think he's speaking to a group of people further into the future than the returnees from Babylon. He's speaking to the little bunch of believers in the upper room on the day of Pentecost before the Spirit falls, feeling marooned, encircled by a hostile world. He's speaking to a bunch of believers who find themselves today surrounded by the forces of ISIS, a bunch of believers who find themselves swamped by a world system that is hostile to the things of God. He's speaking to you and to me who feel like that, and he's saying, remember your beginnings. Remember how ethnic Israel began and yet grew, multiplied. Remember how evangelical Israel began with a promise made to Abraham, with Isaac believing it, with Jacob believing it, with David believing it, with a remnant in Isaiah's day believing it, with a small remnant at the beginning of Jesus' ministry believing it, with a small number of people in the upper room believing it. Remember that they believed God just as, just as Abraham believed God. When God came to Abraham, He gave him a promise. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great that you may be a blessing. I'll multiply, I'll multiply your children. One occasion God took Moses out. Do you remember? Show him the night sky there without the clutter of uh, city lights nearby. He sees this great canopy of stars and God says this to him. He says, look up towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them so shall your offspring be. And we're told that Abraham believed God, and God credited that faith to him as righteousness. And that's where righteousness begins. A right standing before God begins when we believe God in His promise about The servant Messiah Jesus. And from the very beginning, evangelical Israel has believed the promise of the promise, the promise of the coming Messiah. And today, ethnic Israel or evangelical Israel within ethnic Israel believes the promise of the Messiah. And that promise is the promise of the coming Savior. But you know, evangelical Israel isn't limited simply to ethnic Israel that has believed the promise. Evangelical Israel embraces all the children of Abraham, those who share, if they don't share Abraham's genes, they share Abraham's faith. That's what Paul is getting at in Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to to the promise. So keep that in mind. Evangelical Israel. That's who he's referring to here. The small group of believers who trust in the Messiah. And he's saying this, look back to your origins. Ethnic and Evangelical Israel, look back to your origins. Think how small the beginnings were and see how God has acted. Evangelical Israel. If you are a Gentile believer in Jesus, you now have Abraham as your father and you belong to evangelical Israel. And what has God done? He has blessed us. Remember when Jesus came, he gathered that group around him. First word he said to them in the the mountain was this, blessed, 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 blessed. Later on, I will say to you, as Aaron said, may the Lord bless. Jesus says, blessed on His own authority to His own people. He brings the blessing of Abraham to bear on those disciples then and on His disciples now. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find the promise to multiply the church begins to come into being, as in the book of Acts, we find those being added to the church daily who are being saved. And then, as the Word of God multiplies, the church multiplies. Those early Christian leaders who on this All Saints Day, we should remember as we remember all of the saints of God who have died and been martyred for their faith. But we think of those early ones, we think of Thomas, Thomas the Doubter, leaving Jerusalem and going to Syria, then going east to Persia, then going to India, and modern historians say continuing on till he got to China with the gospel. You think of, uh, I saw a movie the other night there, and uh, there was one of the disciples in it where, it's called Risen, and when it comes out, you should go see it. Uh, but one of the disciples is a real character in, in that movie. He's kind of a bouncy, kind of, the kind of worst, kind of bouncy Christian to meets you at the door on a Sunday morning when you're feeling tired. Uh, that kind of disciple. But this, this particular one, whose name just escapes me because I do these things freewheeling, as you know. But as this disciple, whose name will come to me maybe if you're lucky, uh, Calvinistically speaking, uh, he left and he went all across North Africa. He crossed over to Spain. He went up through Spain and France. He crossed over into the uh, Shambolic Islands, uh, the British Islands, uh, as they were under Roman rule then, and was, he was killed, disemboweled and killed there. These early people, all of them, I think, but one died to get the gospel out. And yet the church has multiplied. To today, the church of Jesus Christ is right around the world. Hallelujah. And what the Lord God and His servants say to us, look back, look to Abraham as your father. Consider what God has done. He will bless and will multiply His church. He will do this. No matter how small the church may be in your eyes how how besieged it might feel at times. The Lord is blessing with salvation His church, and He is multiplying His church in the world. And He goes on to explain in verse 3, because the Lord comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of God. It's a picture of the world fallen, the world in sin, the world in which all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the world excluded from paradise. And he's saying that God begins a new creation of sorts. He's saying to the church, the Lord comforts his church, he comforts Zion, he comforts the believing, evangelical Israel of God. He comforts her by giving her a new creation, beginning the work of reforming, reshaping, restoring humanity to its ultimate shape. We know what the end result is. The end result is resurrection for the body and renovation for the universe. But that resurrection begins Prior to the resurrection of the body begins now. If you're in this room and you believe in Jesus, do you know what a miracle that is? That is unusual. That is not natural. That takes the power of the Spirit of God, taking a dead person and making them alive. It means a new creation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Your spirit has been made alive and your spirit is being renewed daily, being renewed. God into the image of Christ. And He's brought us into the place where we experience Eden, the Garden of the Lord. Remember what happened in the Garden of Eden way back. What was the hallmark of the Garden of Eden? It wasn't just that Adam and Eve were perfect people. It wasn't simply that they had access to all the best food and that they themselves had the best genes, though all of that was true. The really wonderful thing about the Garden of Eden was this, that every day the Lord God walked in the garden, and they had personal, they had personal access (coughs) to the Lord God. And they met with Him every day He came to visit them in the garden. It was the place of the presence of God. When eventually they build the tabernacle and the temple, the Lord Lord God says, you build the tabernacle, you build the temple, that's where I will walk with you. In other words, I'll come to theirs, I came to Eden. And in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation tells us, there will be no need of a temple because God and the Lamb, the Lord God and the servant will be there. And people will have wide Open access to the personal presence of God. Yes, this reference to Eden is a reference to the innermost personal habitation of God Himself. The temple was often decorated with the leaves and the flowers of a perfect garden to remind us that the Garden of Eden was the template For the coming temple of God. Well, Abraham believed that. We're being told to go back to our father Abraham. And remember, Abraham believed God. When God made the promise, Abraham believed God. As Paul says, he did not weaken in faith concerning the promise of God, but remained fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. In verses 4 to 6, this promise is expanded. What was part of the promise that God made to Abraham? It was that through His servant, the Messiah, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah has told us something of the mission of the servant, son, Messiah, Savior who's coming. Back in chapter 42, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint until He's established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for His law. He will be made a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. Now, hear the voice of the Lord through His servant in these verses. A law will go out from me, He says. Back in Isaiah 2, the word of the Lord will go from Jerusalem From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Here the Lord Jesus is speaking. We're hearing the Son of God speaking here. A law will go out from me. And I will set my justice, my righteousness, for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands, the remotest peoples hope for me and for my arm, that is for my personal action, my personal action, they wait. Here's the Lord God through His servant reminding us that the plan of God for the servant was that He would reach far distant peoples and embrace them as His people. I think of the language of Peter when he uses all the language and terminology and titles that belong to Israel, and he applies them now to to the church, to the evangelical Israel of today, the church of Jesus Christ. And he says to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once He's saying to Gentiles here, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When it says in verse 5 that God's righteousness in Christ draws near and His salvation in Christ has gone out, we're being told that this salvation that God brings goes beyond the limits of space and time. Not only does it go beyond the limits of space and time to encircle the world and go through the ages to the end of history, but it lasts forever, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, but My salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Here is God saying to you, church, today. He's saying to you as the, the assembly of God's people here today. He's saying to you that this salvation you have in Christ is the only thing, the only thing that is going to last It is the only thing that will not be shaken on that final day, as as the writer to the Hebrews describes it in Hebrews 12, in that final day when everything is going to be shaken. That all the ideas and all the things that man has built and all of their technologies and all of their plans and their projects and their politics and their personalities and everything shaken by the power of God. There is one thing that will not be shaken. Your salvation will not be shaken. It will survive that final cataclysmic holocaust. My salvation will not be shaken. And then in verse 7 and 8. We're asked to listen again once more. We're asked again as we're reminded who we are. We're people who know righteousness and who's in whose hearts is the law of God. We love the law of God. We love God. And yet he says to us, listen. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. He's reminding us, you see, that to be this close to the servant, to receive the promises of God that are wrapped up in the servant, isn't an easy way of life. To speak up for God, to stand up for God, not to be obnoxious, by the way, not to be arrogant and full of hubris but to be humbly standing up for God in a society that by nature is hostile to God will invite abuse, reproach, revilings. We'll be tempted to be afraid of them or dismayed by them. We'll be tempted to feel as if we're under threat. Remember when Jesus came and He He's almost working to the script of this chapter when he comes and he speaks his word of blessing. And in that word of blessing, he begins to unpack what it is, the benefits that we have as Jesus' people. And he reminds us that we're in the kingdom of God. We're in God's, covered by God's reign, that we will inherit the earth that we will see God, that we will be satisfied, and that when we mourn over our sin, we will find the comfort of the gospel. That's mentioned there in verse 3. But then at the very end, as in the very end here, he reminds us, do you remember what he says? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't be afraid. See it as part of what it means to be connected to the perfect man, the perfect servant who goes from perfectly hearing and speaking for God to the physical abuse that we saw as he is struck by the strikers disgrace and spitting cannot be connected to him without experiencing something even if it's only a little thing but something of what it goes means to go along with Jesus. And I say this to us this morning, beloved, you know, I think increasingly the ministry of this church as churches all over America has to be to prepare us for what is to come. It is to prepare us for the reproach of Christ. It is to prepare us for the revilings of the world. It is to galvanize our our hearts and to strengthen our, our innermost being so that we can bear what is to come and bear it nobly because we will need each other. We will need each other to strengthen our hands, and we will need to hear the voice of Jesus speaking. Listen. Pay attention. Hear the word of the Lord. We will need that word to breathe faith into our hearts. Strength. And put our ramrod into our backbone. So that we can stand for Him in the world. But here in verse 8. We're given the reason why we must never fear the reproach of man and never be dismayed at their revilings. And it is simply this. They will not stand. On that final day, they will not stand. Look at verse 8. The moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm Well, eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. We all know Martin Luther's great hymn, don't we, that's sung very often on on, uh, the the Reformation, on these Reformation days and so on. And uh, we sing a form of it here, but there's another form of it that's sung elsewhere. A safe stronghold our God is still. Uh, And the last verse goes something like this. God's Word, for all their craft and force, one moment will not linger, but spite of hell shall have its course, tis written with His finger. And should they take our life, goods, honor, children, wife yet is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. The city of God remaineth. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we live as your people in the world, we would listen, keep listening to you, the Lord God, and to your servant, Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, who shares with you the eternal beauty and perfection of the Godhead. Help us to live by faith, recognizing that the things which are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. Help us, we pray, to be comforted and encouraged by this word today. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.